Welcome to this week's episode of Elgin Movie Watchers Podcast. I'm Chuck Slatkin. I'm here with Steve Gould, and Steve's going to introduce our special guest for this episode. Thank you, Chuck. And uh, I have someone with us. It is uh, Ben Davis. It was kind of uh, an ironic thing that happened, though, I guess, probably uh, over 20 years ago. He was with a good friend of his coming back from brunch and was uh, bullshitting about revival movie theaters, blah, 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 blah. He said, you know, it'd be nice to meet somebody from the one that I was interested in was uh, the Elgin that was up in Chelsea. He was doing that as his friend Ed and he were passing by the garden on Sheridan Square where I was working. And Ed turns to him and says, well, as a matter of fact, you can hear Steve Gould. And uh, from that, Ben interviewed Chuck and I for a wonderful article that appeared in the film Quarterly about uh, children of the 60s and us running the Elgin. I, I think that about nails the uh, introduction, doesn't it, Ben? Yeah, that's it. Okay. And then subsequently really got uh, the dynamo going and uh, created a book called Repertory Movie Theaters of New York City, which was published a few years ago that contained not only chapters about the Elgin, but the history of uh, repertory revival theaters and other theaters similar to the Elgin. So welcome aboard, Ben. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks for uh, joining Uh, us. uh, Yep. Chuck and I have a fond spot for uh, one of our midnight shows, Pink Flamingos, which, of course, was directed by John Waters. So we also have a common link to you in another manner, because I know you're a child of Baltimore. Uh, right. While, right. I know, while I know you weren't here at the time, the uh, we were actually showing films at the Elgin. Uh, I was wondering about some of the theaters that I think are revival theaters down there. I I remember one was the uh, Senator, the other was the Charles or something. Did you go to them? Yeah, but the Senator, as I remember, wasn't a a revival theater. It was a first run theater. Unless unless there was a point when it wasn't, it was on its down down slope. But I think mainly it was a, a first run theater. The Charles was an art theater, and that I did go to uh, fairly frequently. Um, I think back then, it mainly showed first front foreign films. Now, today, it it also does uh, revivals. It does a lot of things that the Elgin and the other rep theaters had done in their heyday. So now, it, it, in addition to first runs, I think they also have, like on Sundays, revival shows. But that was after my time, after I'd left Baltimore. The art theaters in Baltimore, its heyday was in the 50s, 50s, 60s. And by, I don't know, maybe the 80s, they started to die down. But back then we had, oh God, we had about four or five uh, art theaters and that was really wonderful. The Charles came about later in a second revival in Baltimore. How, how the hell did you get your, the bee in your bonnet to think about the Elgin and that article and stuff? Where, where, where'd that come from? I had, when I came to New York, one of the first things that I found out 
was that it had a lot of revival houses, of repertory theaters, more than uh, Baltimore had. At the time that I came, the movement was dying out, but there was still the Bleecker Street in my neighborhood. There was Theater 80 St. Mark's. There was the Thalia in the Upper uh, West Side. And I was interested in them, and I went to them. I saw Les Enfants du Parti at the Thalia. <laughs> that was a real experience. Yeah. And I also went uh, fairly frequently to Theater 80 St. Mark's. A friend of mine and I went to their New Year's Eve party, their annual New Year's Eve party. Right, yeah. But I learned about the other theaters that were had been in existence, but no longer were, like the Elgin. So I found out about the Elgin. I began work at CUNY as a writer, and I took advantage of their policy of, of letting their, stay, uh, their employees take one free course a semester at one of their colleges. So I went to a college of Staten Island in the film program, the master's program. And that's where I was doing a, uh, an independent study with uh, Jerry Carlson, who was one of my professors. I mean, I took a lot of courses with him, but he was really great. Really smart, very serious, and I loved that. So I did an independent course with him, and that was when I found out about more about the rep movie houses, because that was my uh, topic. I guess that's where I really found out about the Elgin, the Bleecker Street, the New Yorker, the Regency, along with the uh, Elgin, were no longer in existence by the time I came. That's basically how I found out. What year was that that you came to help? 1986, I came to New York. Yeah, the Elgin was gone in the spring of uh, 77. 77. Yeah. So, uh, Ben, you think this uh, professor yours, Carlson, ever went to any of these uh, theaters, you know, like uh, ours or any of the others? No, I, I just don't know. I, I would assume that he had if he had been here. He's the man who moderates CUNY Cinematheque. Yeah, I, uh, I, I go on there sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, what role did, did films play in, in your personal life? Is it something that you got started real young or your family? Or how did you get into, into movies? I started going to the movies probably when I was about five years old. My father took me. My father died when I was seven. So I don't have that many memories of him. But one of the memories that I have is of him taking me to the movies. And what I remembered at the time and afterwards, I didn't know the title of it. It was about Jewish immigrant section who went to Nazi Germany to what I thought at the time was to rescue a Jewish woman who had been his neighbor, the mistress of a Nazi general. That's who I remember of the film, but it, it just stuck with me all through the years. And I was always curious about the film, about its name, etc. I found out later its title is Mr. Emanuel, and it's an English film. Then when I was in high school, I had to do a book report and I was browsing through, you know, books to see what I wanted to do. And I was reading the, the jacket of one of the books. and I thought, oh, my God, this is the book of the film that I just had this memory of. So I did the book report and then I forgot about it. Then about, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I'm browsing again in a bookstore 
on 59th Street near Bloomingdale's. Yeah. And they used copies, et cetera, uh, that they were selling for a dollar. And I come across this one book titled The Five Silver Daughters. And I knew, I just knew that book was related to the, to the film that was always in my memory that I'd never stopped thinking about. And it was related. But well, that is a great so story. That, that, Back in those days, every Saturday, you go to a, uh, to a neighborhood movie, you'd see a double feature, a cowboy and a mystery, you know, usually that, plus the newsreel, like that I religiously did. I loved it. And as I got a little older, I could take the streetcar downtown and go to the uh, first-run theaters. And that was really interesting because in those days, each of these first-run theaters were owned by a different studio. So they each one showed that studio's films. There was a, there was a movie theater that showed MGM, the um, Hippodrome, which was a major movie theater. It had a stage where they had stage shows. They showed RKO films. There was another one, The Century, showed 20th Century Fox. And I got to know the uh, different styles, I, the logos of the different studios and, the, and their individual styles. It was just something I, I was interested in. I was aware of it. The Hippodrome used to have stage shows. And I remember one standing with my father in line, like stage door Johnny's. And Ginger Rogers was doing something at the Hippodrome and she was walking through the line and we were so excited. There were, there was Ginger Rogers, you know, and we saw the uh, Nicholas Brothers. It was really interesting, wow. really great. Yeah. And, you know, the strange thing was, after the Elgin closed, I wound up working for a movie theater chain called Translux, and they operated the Hippodrome for a number of years down there. And I met the old manager that ran the ah. Hippodrome. And one time, uh, since he was an old song and dance man himself, he uh, put on... Uh, top hat and tails and went out on the marquee and was doing like Jolson imitations. It, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, obviously you really immerse yourself with stuff. Did you ever from uh, talking about whether it was Fox or RKO or MGM, did you ever uh, decide it? Well, this is the studio that has the best stuff for me or were you pretty egalitarian? No, I actually wasn't. I was really a kind of a snob. And I thought that uh, uh, Fox, that Fox's films were more strictly entertainment. Their stars were second-rate talents. I mean, this is what I thought at the time, that they weren't as good as Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. And MGM did better films. You know, and this was only from my own viewing. Maybe I had read some of this stuff, too. I was less aware of Paramount and Universal. Or but, you, but you were also a youngster at this time, too, right? A teenager? Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, I was maybe between 8 and 10 or 11. Wow. I, I really liked some of the films of the 50s. I really liked the social problem films that they were doing in the 50s. And I thought, oh, great. You know, finally, we're getting some really interesting stuff. I just felt like the films from the 40s, you know, that were sort of fluff. They didn't grab me the way the social problem films did. You really 
become immersed in them. Can you give uh, our listeners an example of like a 50s film that you were uh, kind of uh, stoked about? Well, there was one about a mental institution. I I don't remember the, uh, the title of it. These titles go out of my mind. Um, <laughs> there was another film about adolescence, Blackboard Jungle. Right, Blackboard Jungle, yeah. Later on, the art theaters, the uh, foreign films really interested me, became passionate about that. But my, my movie going was really spotty. You know, in my 20s, I didn't go as much to the movies because I was involved in other things, in, in work and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I went to uh, social work school and I was, you know, really involved with that and reading. So I didn't didn't have the energy at that point to do much more. Yeah. Looks like you made up for it. I mean, after all. It was later on that I became involved with Baltimore Film Society and I began to write program notes for them. And I think I even program one series. It was at that point I became interested in film noir. I really loved film noir. I was reading books on it and etc. And I did a series for the Baltimore Film Society, but I also wrote the program notes. Snake Pit. The film Snake I was Pit. Oh, yeah. thinking about before Snake Pit, yeah. Yeah. The one film that I uh I did a program notes on was uh, Some Like It Hot. And I was just intrigued by the last line of the film. Well, nobody's perfect. And I took that line. I tried to, what did it tell us about the, um, the film itself and what it meant? And I wrote this whole essay on it about gender, identity, et cetera. And, um, and when I came to that night to the showing, it was early and I sat down and there were two guys in back of me and they were reading the program notes. And one guy said, well, now I really understand the film. <laughs> I was so proud of that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you did your job. That's all you need <laughs> to keep going, right? Exactly. Okay, so the question I have is, how, so how do you go from writing program notes to end up not only writing a book, but getting it published on repertory cinema? Well, after I graduated, I wanted to write, I wanted to do something with film. So one of the topics that I picked was the first piece in the United States, and they both were in New York. So the research was right at my fingertips. So I did the research, I developed an article. You know, I the way I got it published was I just went and researched the different film magazines. And I sent it to a bunch of different film magazines. And this one magazine, Film History, took it and published it. And that was my first published article in in film. I want to just ask how it felt to get that first one published. Oh, I made a friend of mine read the (laughs) magazine. I read the article that night. I wouldn't let him go without reading (laughs) first. (laughs) Yeah, I was really proud. How did I get to do the book? After I graduated, the article was the first step. And, you know, I just wanted to do more. It was at that point that I I knew about some of the rep houses because of my own personal experience with them. And that's what I I decided since 
they're in New York since this is a New York topic. And probably most of the stuff is there for me to research. I was limited. I couldn't do traveling because I didn't have much money. I figured that was the topic for me to explore. Plus, I knew that once all these theaters die out, their history might be lost. And I really, my idea, I, what I really wanted was to capture their history before it was gone, to know who the people were who ran them, what kinds of programs they had. So that was my idea. From there, I just did the research. I started with you and Steve. You two are just wonderful. I mean, you were so open, you were so giving. I had individual interviews with the two of you as well as a joint interview. And then, you know, two people. The Charles Theater was a theater that was only operating for a year back in 1960 to 61. And it was run by these two guys. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I'll never be able to find out these guys. One day, just, to, just for the hell of it, I went to the phone book and one of the men and one of their names was in the phone book. I mean, it was just, it was wonderful. Yeah, that's great. And then the other thing was just similar. The guy who owned the um, Regency, I got by just, again, filling in the phone book, getting his name, calling him. He wanted to know who I was, what my background was. I said, I had worked for the Jewish Board of Family and Children's society said I'll call you back or he told me to call him at a certain time I called him back he's he was willing to interview me and he said oh by the way I have uh, greetings for you from from boom boom I said how do you know him he's my best friend his best friend was the executive director of the Jewish board <laughs> he had called this guy uh Levine asked who I was to get a recommendation, and he gave me a good recommendation. So I got that interview, which was a terrific interview. You know, and then you just, John Pearson, for example, who was in California, I didn't know him from Beans, except I knew his name. And I happened to find out that his wife had a website I contacted her and she in turn talked to her husband and then he, you know, he and I got together. So it was just, you just use whatever imagination you had to try to contact people. Um, what's her name? Um, the, uh, oh God, the woman who was at the Bleecker Street Cinema. Um, I know these people like the back of my hand and Jackie Reynolds just go out of my mind at my age. But anyway, yeah. I called her because I didn't contact with her because she had done something for MoMA. So I was able to contact MoMA and ask them if I could get in touch with her. And, you know, yeah. and she and they contacted, got her permission. And then I, um, that was an interesting one. I went to her apartment for my first interview and she had her roommate there. I figured afterwards it was because she didn't know who I was and wanted to make sure that I was safe, as she was safe from me. That, that was so, uh, Sid Geffen's uh, uh, widow, right? Uh, that was Jackie Renault? Yeah. yeah. Jackie Renault. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, it sounds like you... Uh, 
had to play detective a lot on this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Was- I just wanted to say for our younger listeners, there were actually a time when they had books of phone numbers that you could go to. And right, look at. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it was outdated. <laughs> the phone book was outdated. <laughs> That's funny. Of course, you also had to play detective to find a, a damn publisher for your book too, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, I started off with university uh, publishers. I don't know why it wasn't suited for university publishing. But anyway, two of them were initially interested in me. And what their system was is that they presented the manuscripts to readers. And based on what the readers' evaluations were, you know, was whether they um, accepted you or not. I got horrible evaluations, really bad. And it was really from one in particular, and it was really distressing. The woman that I had contact with wanted me to respond to the bad evaluation, which I did. I thought it through really carefully. I was not defensive um, or negative, and she really liked my response. But one of the readers was sort of on the fence about the manuscript, but he gave me some really good suggestions, which I incorporated. Basically, what he said was, I should have a context. I should develop the context in which these movie theaters existed, which for me, it enriched the book enormously. I mean, I just love that. I went to Cineast Magazine, and I looked at the book review section, and I looked at the books that were <clears throat> being reviewed, and I found out what who the publishers were, because I figured, you know, that's my next avenue to pursue. And that's how I came across uh, McFarland. McFarland published the book. Now, uh, had you ever come across anyone in passing uh, that had read the book or anybody, in, in fact, that you met that had gone to some of these uh, revival and repertory houses? No, I haven't met too many people who have read the book. A friend of mine, he gave the book to Rod Downey, and he told me later that Downey was so excited by the book, he read it in one night, That which was really, really made me feel good. Yeah, we actually had a series of... Uh, uh, not not Junior, but Bob Downey Sr.'s films at the uh, Elgin. We we did a series of them. One of Chuck's oh, yeah. finest hours. <laughs> Do you ever go to see any of the films that they show or some of the newer houses like Metrograph or Film Forum? Do you ever? I haven't been to Metrograph yet. It's really out of the way. But the Film Forum, I go to all the time. You know, after uh, this year of suspended animation for a lot of us, it's uh, oh yeah, it's strange to get immersed. I mean, my wife Nancy and I went down to the film forum because I I wanted to see uh, a film down there, and it and it was about a week after, you know, they uh, allowed that, but and they had this seating that you know six seats apart, and you had to continue wearing a mask, right. And it, and the candy stand wasn't open. So, you know, uh, it's uh, still going to be a new normal, I think, for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I want to start going. I, in fact, I was thinking maybe I'll do my maiden voyage tomorrow and go to a movie. I haven't decided yet what I want to see. There are a couple of films that 
you know, sound really interesting. You got anything in the hopper for uh, any articles or anything uh, that are percolating? Uh, I'm not doing anything really ambitious, but what, what I'm doing is, uh, as you know, I've been doing a film series at the library. That was the film noir stuff you were doing, right? Yeah. My first series was on film noir. And what I wanted to do was I had taken a film noir uh, course in my graduate program. And it was I thought, well, if I were doing film noir, I would try to give it more cohesion, more of a context, rather than just individual films. So I developed a series taking it from why did why did the film noir genre happen? You know, what were its main characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. So I try to give it a cohesive um, context. I became interested in the blacklist. And I did a series of uh, films of blacklisted uh, directors and their last film before they were blacklisted. I was uh, wondering with the film noir, if you could uh, give our listeners uh, uh, names of a film or two that you had in that series. Double Indemnity, Out of the Past, one of my favorite oh, yeah. films, Out, oh, yeah. of, the Out of the Past. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a good film noir. Uh, yeah, great film noir. A lot of the people who uh, tune in to the podcast, you know, obviously are younger than us, but uh, really listen to it for some ideas of, uh, of of films that they they might not see them in a movie theater. They might stream them, but at least we're giving them some ideas. So that's why oh, we yeah. try to uh, mention film. Yeah, people are watching a lot uh, streaming these days. What was the, uh, did you remember, uh, you didn't play that uh, that uh, retrospective that Woody Allen made about Blacklist. You, you, these oh, yeah. are the... Well, that, that's what I'm planning on. This is the next series I'm doing that I want to do is um, Hollywood Under the Blacklist. There's a number of, uh, or several films that portray the operation of the blacklist in Hollywood and what it meant to what it meant to the Hollywood professionals. Uh, so the front is one. Um, <clears throat> D- uh, Dalton Trumbo is another. He Dalton Trumbo was a Hollywood screenwriter, probably the highest paid uh, screenwriter at the time he was blacklisted. And this film is about his life, but both his personal and professional life while he was blacklisted. He was also, he was one of the first to be blacklisted and he also broke the blacklist because it was his film that uh, he wrote for Otto Preminger. Exodus? Exodus, right. Exodus, that and Spartacus were the, both came out around the same time and they were the first ones that Trumbo's name appeared in the credits that he, because prior to that, he had um, he had used pseudonyms. Right. He, um, he wrote stuff for the used pseudonyms. Yeah, he wrote stuff for the uh, movies, but uh, he had to use pseudonyms. Like one uh, film he wrote as Robert Rich was given the Academy Award, <laughs> and they did. <laughs> oh, and guilty by suspicion was suspicion. Yeah. You talking about uh, Trumbo and uh, Spartacus? <laughs> I kept thinking 
maybe it'd be a Saturday Night Live bit, but I could see instead of all those slaves standing up going, I'm Spartacus, it'd be great for them to stand up and say, I'm Dalton Trumbull, I'm Dalton Trumbull, I'm Dalton Trumbull. <laughs> that would be a good uh, satire. I'm also doing another one. I just written another one, a series uh, called um, Orson Welles Before Citizen Kane. And there are two films that have been done about Wells when he was on Broadway, which I, they're films that I really love. One is Me and Orson Wells. It's basically about the first play that he directed in his new uh, company, the Mercury Theater, was Julius Caesar. And the play and the movie is about the process, which was totally chaotic, it was really good. And the other one is, is about, um, he had directed a film under um, the WTA, which was a radical musical. Is that The Cradle Will Rock? The Cradle Will Rock, right, yeah. right. Wow. It's I didn't know they had a film about that. I know they tried to put the musical on. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. No, it's a film about what happened when the opening night was canceled at the last minute and what did they do to compensate for that? It's a wonderful film. I love it. So that's all I'm doing right now. Well, it sounds like you uh, keeping the irons in the fire. I'm trying. So I guess uh, what we usually like to uh, ask of uh, our guests going back to woulda, coulda, but uh, if you were programming at the Elgin, could you, uh, could you pick out two films whose names you'd love to see on uh, the old marquee oh. out there? <laughs> Les Enfants du Paradis, Children of Paradise. Okay. I'd love to see some poetic realist films like <laughs> French poetic realism, uh, like Port of Shadows. Well, Les Enfants du Paradis, you'd have to do a lot by itself because it's three hours long. Right. Unless this was an all-night show. Yeah, we could give you an all-night show, Ben. <laughs> what would you put with uh, Port of Shadows then for another uh, combo? Pepe Lamoco. All right. I think we'd have enough letters uh, to put that up on the marquee. <laughs> we could do that. Well, I, I, I think we really would love to thank uh, Ben for spending this time uh, with us and uh, opening up to some of these uh, great stories about uh, you and film over the years. So uh, it's great that you were able to share this with, with us about the Elgin, since you're probably the first uh, guest that we've talked to who never was there. Either we talked to people who worked there or uh, 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 saw a lot of films there or had a film shown there, but you're the first in the category of someone who helped uh, uh, carve Elgin into history with the work you've done in, in your book. See, you're starting a trend, Ben. Uh, we really appreciate you taking your time and sharing these stories so our listeners could get a uh, bird's eye view of how, uh, how it works for writing a book and uh, all the research 
and your love of film. Take care. Okay, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Bye. Well, that was an interesting episode, uh, Steve, with uh, Ben Davis. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. After all, you know, we've known him for a while now, between the article and then the chapter about the Elgin in his book. Yeah, and uh, also we, we should mention to our friends and listeners to the podcast that uh, Ben Davis did indeed write a book, Repertory Movie Theaters of New York City, Havens for Revivals, Indies, and the Avant-Garde, 1960 to 1994, published by McFarland and Company, Inc. And uh, there's a chapter on the uh, history of the Elgin. So, you know, check out Ben's book. And I would like to ask uh, uh, listeners to the uh, Elgin Movie Watchers podcast to uh, please follow us on Twitter at Elgin Movie, Instagram at Elgin Movie Watchers, and Facebook at Elgin Movie Watchers podcast. And to contact us with any ideas or criticisms or uh, movies to consider or whatever, memories, uh, contact us at elginmoviewatchers at gmail.com. That's elginmoviewatchers, one word, at gmail.com. And also want to let you know that we're going to be having some monthly giveaways in the near future. And if you want to be uh, eligible for the giveaway, we have to hear from you on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or email us. As they used to say, keep them postcards coming if you want to win. There's a new episode each week. And as they say, we'll uh, be with you uh, with the next episode. Looking forward to see you next time, Steve. Okay, take care.